Welcome to the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Good to have you, uh, everyone. On the advice of uh, Sekishi and some others, uh, I did a little more research this week on the barn swallows that have been flying in here. And uh, I, I felt very bad last week. I said, oh, you know, I need to chase them out. This is our place. I didn't mean it like that. It's actually out of kindness. I, You know, we closed the door here. And if they built their nest, we have a nest here, barn swallows. And if they built their nest, I... I would just feel bad. I would, I, I would leave the door open, you know, for this. So maybe we should take a vote sometime on whether the barn swallows just need to find their other place. We have plenty of rooms here at Tree Leaf, or whether we should give them back. Well, they have to agree to share, I think. Yes, but the, the trouble is also the other thing is the person sitting Zazen right there gets little barn swallow presents on top of their head, just at one spot right there. That's another... Yes, anyway, good to uh, have you all here today. Uh, we are continuing and we're actually finishing our reading of the Hokyoki, which is Master Dogen's diary of his time in China when he was very young, very questioning, very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and uh, looking for uh, the meaning of this practice. Um, as we're going to see at the end, um, this is something of a mystery text in Buddhism because it was found by Ajo, Dogen's right-hand man, after uh, Dogen passed away. Uh, Ajo went into Dogen's room to go through his late master's papers and found it on Dogen's hard drive. Well, I don't think he had a hard drive, but you get the, the meaning. And no one knew for centuries what it was. And, and when Dogen had written it, if he had actually written it when he was in China or later uh, as a remembrance, my feeling is he probably worked, it looks like a rewriting, but he probably worked from notes he took at the time. Uh, the other thing we're seeing is uh, Master Dogen quotes Rujing many points, some of which apply to us, some of which don't, some of which Master Dogen himself may have changed in his approach when he went back to Japan. Not everything here strikes me as exactly the way Master Dogen interpreted even Ru Jing when Master Dogen went back. And that leads to the question, does every teacher, every student have to be exactly like their teacher? And I, I, I often say is, no, no, it's the same piano, but you learn to play the piano from your piano teacher. You don't have to play exactly the same way as the piano teacher, as long as you are making some beautiful music in harmony. So when Buddhism came, oh, would you hand me the microphone? When Buddhism came um, to China from India, they added Chinese ways. When it moved from China to Japan, they added Japanese ways. Now we're 
adding Western ways. I'm now rereading my teacher's book, um, uh, The Real Dragon by Nishijima Roshi. I have to say not everything that Nishijima wrote. Nishijima Roshi was a beautiful man, but he had some of his very own ideas, for example, on the Four Noble Truths. He had kind of a unique interpretation of the Four Noble Truths that, frankly, nobody in the Buddhist world that I know quite agrees with Nishijima Roshi. It's a very beautiful and very helpful interpretation, but he found it in his own heart, like people will do sometimes. You know, this is what I think it means. And I say, well, it's a beautiful interpretation. I'm going to go with the more standard interpretation. Does that mean that I'm being somehow unfaithful to Nishijima Roshi? Nishijima Roshi would be the first one to say, absolutely not. You need to find your own Buddhism and express this your own way. You don't have to be a carbon copy. And I'm saying that uh, with the exception I have my students sitting here. Um, uh, what I'm saying doesn't apply to you, however. You understand that? I'm just talking about me. I get to, I get to do what I want. You guys, I expect you just to say yes. Say yes. Okay. All right. So anyway, this is a Master um, Dogen's Remembrances of Things Past. Master Rujing, we're on page 24. Rujing instructed me, when you do Zazen, place your tongue on the roof of the mouth. This is very appropriate. We had a question about this this week with someone having uh, teeth issues. When you do Zazen, place your tongue on the roof of the mouth and allow it to press behind the front teeth. If after 40 or 50 years of Zazen practice, you are accustomed to sitting without drooping or becoming drowsy, it is all right to close your eyes during Zazen. Notice he says, after 40 or 50 years. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my theory on that. Those who are not so accustomed to Zazen should sit with the eyes open. If you sit long and are tired, it is all right to shift the position of your legs. This has been directly translated by the Buddha for 50 generations. All right. Well, first off, uh, the advice we gave on someone who was having two issues is all about the posture. If I were to sum up the whole posture one way, not too loose, not too tight. Don't squeeze too hard. Some people grit their teeth. That can really hurt after a while. Or put too much pressure on the jaw or the neck or sit rigidly, right? Don't do that. Neither slack. Don't lean forward. Don't let your mouth hang open. Don't let your neck droop forward. Not too loose, not too tight, but you have to find out what that means for your own sitting, okay? I'm a little, my robes are a little tangled here, excuse me. I can't see what I'm doing. I'm wearing Chinese robes. These are robes I brought from China a few years ago. They don't fit exactly like the Soto robes, so I kind of have to keep after them a little bit. Okay, there. All right. Um, about the eyes, we sit with the eyes um, one-third open, not to push the world away, not to run after the wor world either. Some people sometimes write, but most meditation, you close the eyes. And there's more of a feeling of escapism. You're trying to get away from the world. Now, Master uh, Ru Jing says here, well, after 40 or 50 years, I think it's okay to close your eyes. Now, here's my theory about this as I'm getting older. When Master Nishijima was getting near 90 years old, we'd go up to the Tokei Inn, and I've seen this with many of the old guys at Sojiji, too. And, you know, it's a warm day like this. And suddenly, master, the old master would start drooping forward a little bit, little wobbly eyes. And uh, 
suddenly he'd wake up. You'd know he's getting a little sleepy, which I think you're allowed to do after 40 or 50 years of practicing Buddhism. You know, you're allowed, I think, to fall asleep. But Azuma Roshi, as soon as you used to joke, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I was in very deep samadhi. Very deep. (laughs) No, it's okay. So we keep our eyes open. All right, um, next. I asked, those in Japan and China who doubt say that the Zazen widely practiced in Zen monasteries is the Dharma of the Hinayana. How do you respond to this? The Hinayana, of course, may have a couple of meanings. It meant the original Buddhism, the old Buddhism of the suttas or Indian Buddhism. And, of course, we're in the Mahayana, which was supposed to be, to many people, the truer teaching. You know how this goes. I've talked about this before. The truer teaching that supplanted the Hinayana. These days, we don't quite speak in these terms. And so what it means, perhaps, is Hinayana is a little more self-centered to get your own enlightenment, to get your own benefit sitting has nothing to do with the earlier tradition and the bodhisattva of course in the mahayana is sitting not just for yourself but for everyone actually you're sitting for everyone which happens to include yourself all right rujing said such critics in china and japan have not yet clarified buddha dharma dogen you should know that the true dharma of the tathagata goes beyond the external appearance of so-called great or small vehicles. The compassion of the ancient Buddhas falls as naturally as weeds cut by the mower. Oh, he's talking about weeds too. And produces many skillful means, which we call Mahayana and Hinayana. In other words, what we're practicing here is not Mahayana, not Hinayana. It just is what it is. And the beauty of it all is it transcends all that. And the Buddha had many skillful means. To one person, he'd teach one thing that he thought was helpful. To another person, he'd teach another thing that he thought was helpful. So there are many skillful means, which we call Mahayana and Hinayana. You should know that Mahayana is seven pieces of vegetable rice cake. Hinayana is three pieces of sesame rice cake. I just... I had this discussion with someone else in another group, and it's like saying, notice that Mahayana is football, Hinayana is baseball. It suits different people, both excellent sports. See, he's not saying one is better than the other. Can you guys hear okay? All right. Furthermore, Buddha, Buddha ancestors have never deceived children by pretending to have treasures in their closed fists. They open their hands and give golden leaves or pieces of gold according to the situation. That's what he's trying to get at. They don't keep their treasures as a secret, but they teach according to the situation. They give predictions of enlightenment when called for and skillful guidance when called for. None of their activities is ineffective and nothing they have given is not useful. Okay? And again, just like we were saying, different teachers may teach different ways. I may teach different ways for different people sometimes. All 
skillful means. Moving on. Rujing said, I see that you do Zazen in your place in the monk's hall without sleep day and night. This is wonderful. You'll soon experience the exquisite fragrance that is beyond compare in this world. This is an auspicious sign. Visions of drops of oil falling on the ground in front of you are also an auspicious sign. As are powerful and unusual bodily sensations. When you experience these things, you should immediately increase your intensity of practice as if you were putting out a fire on your head. All right. This section merits some discussion and may be a perfect example of how there are different ways to practice, different ways to encourage people at different times. Here at Tree Leaf, most of the times, I say we practice at home. Just sit a bit, forget about time. It's not a matter of long and short. Take it easy. And you will once in a while feel the soft, the borders of the division between you and the world soften, sometimes maybe even fully drop away. But when you're in a monastery or in session, sometimes it's different. We sit easy to realize that the me, myself, and I is not everything. But sometimes, at certain places, like Antaiji, where they sit for 15 hours a day, when you go there for say, seeing it was a real hard Zen master sometimes. They'd go without sleep. They'd sit long hours when they were in the session. And he would push them. And I encourage all of you, if you can, once in a while, to also go to a practice place in the traditional way that's a bit intense. To sit with your me, myself, and I, pushing hard. To realize there's nothing to push for. It's all right here. Sometimes we walk. Sometimes we run. It's ever underfoot. Now, the one thing that's interesting here is uh, a couple of things. He's pushing them to have some kind of realization. Do not ever think that what we're doing here is not to have a realization. The realization is to realize that the hard border between yourself and the world is not as hard and frictional, and there's not as much division and conflict. This is Kensho. This is the opening. When you, we sit the way we do, we open to the world. Sometimes when you sit in the hard fashion, it suddenly drops away. Dogen had an experience he called dropping body and mind. This is what we do. This is what Ru Jing was doing. Sometimes you push hard for this. Sometimes you sit easy and just open to it. If you're in a monastery with Ru Jing, there are times to sit with day and night pushing hard. 
Now, he, he also speaks about, though, some auspicious signs. Now, this is where I have a question about Rujing. I'm sure, like I do, I have students come to me and they say, I'm sitting in Zazen, I've had unusual experiences. And here's what I usually tell them. I say, it might, it, does it feel bad? No, no, it feels okay. That's the most important thing. If it's a really harmful experience, like they feel like the devil's talking to them or they're, they're getting really paranoid. I tell them, take a break from Zazen. Um, but if they say, no, it feels good. It feels like a positive experience. I say, well, just go with it. See what happens. It could be a good sign. Um, some people believe that it could have deep meaning. You know, the Buddhas are sending you a message. It could be. Other people believe it could have a more ordinary meaning. If you're sitting in a darkened room, sensory deprivation experience, in silence, the mind is going to do some stuff. I often talk, for example, when my eyes are closed, kind of a dark room, the koans, the, 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 the dots of light on the back of my eyes, you know, the patterns, start to form patterns and I start to see things. I start to get feelings. Sometimes I was sitting, I would get very light. One time my body expanded very large. One thing, it seemed like my hearing got very intense. I could hear things very far away. Uh, one time, a, a little clown cowboy came out on a covered, very strange, I remember, came out on a covered wagon during Zazen and rode the covered wagon like the cowboys right in front of me on the tatami mat. And one time I saw a little Buddha. I think so. Or I'm not sure if I was dreaming. I'm asking, did I really experience these things? I think I did. They seemed real at the time, and I thought I had a little conversation with the cowboy up as I remember, for a couple of minutes, like silent. We weren't talking because there were other people in the room, so I couldn't have been using words, but somehow I was having a, you know, hi, hi kind of conversation. So what to make of this? Now, he's speaking of visions of drops of oil falling on the ground in front of you. You know, this could be many things. It could be just the, the eyes in the darkened room. It could be the signs of a migraine headache coming on, people with migraine Issues tend to see things in front of the eyes, or it could be a very, very auspicious sign. I don't know. I just want to say this. I happen to be reading this book called Vietnamese Zen in the Late 20th Century by Zen Master Thich Tan Tu. Not to be confused with Thich Nhat Hanh. This is um, a different fellow from Vietnam. And I received this book when I went to Vietnam um, seven or eight years ago. And had the privilege of sitting at uh, this Zen master's monastery, uh, Truk Lam, in South Vietnam, which is now just Vietnam. Um, and uh, it was a very, very wonderful experience. And when I left, uh, I believe they gave me this book. And I think it sat on my shelf. So I never read it. I never read it. And this week, I just happened to come across it. I said, oh, I should thank the master, and I read it. Now, there are a, a Rinzai lineage from Vietnam, which had its own history. They, they, they came from, they believe their roots came from China in the 3rd or 4th century. So they're influenced by Chinese culture, of course, very strongly, because Vietnam had a big cultural influence from China. But it's their own thing. So it's different in its own ways, again. Again, not a carbon copy of Chinese uh, Buddhism. But he happened to have a section which I was just reading yesterday called 
strange things while sitting meditation. And it's interesting to see that someone in their own little culture has their own little interpretation, but it's, it's basically the same interpretation you usually hear from me. I'm just going to read it to you. During sitting meditation, practitioners often experience peculiarities such as a heavy body as if it is pressed by a heavy load, a body so light as if flying in the air, some tiny creatures crawling on the face, an electric shock running up the spinal cord, something touching your body terribly. The English here is beautiful because it's, it's someone who is obviously not a native speaker did the translation, and sometimes it's just beautiful the way it's phrased. Something touching your body terribly. Body wiggling. Head shaking. Some light flashing or hearing someone speak in your ears. Do not be happy with or scared of those phenomena. Understand them as illusory. Take control of yourself and do not yield to them. Even if you see the Buddha or ghosts, neither welcome nor reject them. As you know, they are illusory and under and unacceptable. Even if, ah, wait a second, do not care about the externals. If your mind is at peace, it is correct. Even if a horrible sight appears, it is only illusory, unreal. There is no reason to fear. How can something unreal do harm to you? While sitting in meditation, if you see something queer, mainly in the dream, widely open your eyes and calmly stare at it. If it is still there, close your eyes and recall the five skandhas, like the five senses basically, are empty. So is that phenomenon, so is that phenomenon empty. There is nothing to worry about. Okay. So things will happen. I encourage you, the, the important point is, hello, you have to be quiet today, okay? My little daughter has shown up, all right? The important point is when hungry ghosts show up, like just walk through the door here, um, just accept it, be at peace, take it for what it is. And the most important thing is whether you're sitting hard or sitting easily, we do drop body and mind in the hard borders between ourselves and the rest of the world. Okay, let me move on. Rujing said, the world honor one said that hearing and thinking about the way is like being outside the gate. But Zazen is like coming home and sitting calmly inside. Therefore, the merit of doing Zazen, even for one moment, is immeasurable. I have been practicing the way for over 30 years, he said, without ever turning my back. And although I am 65 years old, I am more determined than ever. You too should practice with this intensity, as if you had received the prediction of enlightenment from the golden mouth of the Buddha himself. All right. Then Rujing said, or another time Rujing said, during Zazen, do not lean on the wall, screen or the back of a chair. If you do, it will cause you to become ill. You should sit with a straight back, following the guidelines for Zazen, never violating them. Rujing said, if you get up from Zazen and do walking meditation, do not walk in a circle, but go in a straight line. If after 20 or 30 steps, you want to turn around, 
Always turn to the right. Always begin your steps with the right foot, then the left foot. First off, when I was in China, you're going to think I travel around a lot. I guess over time I visited a couple of places. I sat in China and they did their kinhin in a circle. So I guess even in China, not everyone follows exactly Master Ru Jing's way. But uh, always going to the right. The reason is, I believe, in Buddhist cosmology, right is an auspicious direction. Right is the auspicious. When you circumambulate the Buddha, you always go to the right. Isn't that right? Uh-huh. Okay. Rujing said, the ruins of the place where the Tathagata got up from Zazen and did walking meditation still exist. I saw that. I'm giving a very serious talk here. Still exist in Ujanda Kingdom in India. Also, Layman Vimalakarti's house still exists today. And the foundation stones of Jeddak. I guess I do travel around a lot. I've been a lot of these places. Last year I went to India, I actually. I guess I do get around. Yeah. I'm a kind of jet set Zen guy. He did. So uh, the foundation stones of Jetta Grove Monastery have not been buried. When people go to examine these sacred places, the results of their measurements always differ. Some measure long, others measure short. Some find the stones close together and others find them farther apart. Their findings don't correspond to each other. This is the vitality of Buddha ancestors. Well, I don't know if this is true in the physical world. I think the stones are just as far away from each other as they are. But your heart makes all the difference, doesn't it? Throughout our zazen. Isn't that right? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Good zen answer. Master Bodhidharma said the same thing. What? That's right. That's what he said. Say what? You should also know that the bowl and robe as well as the fist and nostrils of the ancestors, which have been transmitted to us in China, cannot be definitively measured. Okay, moving on. I stood up and bowed with my head down to the floor, shedding tears of joy, said Dogen. Rujing said, in Zazen, it is possible to develop samadhi by placing the mind in various locations. However, I would say during Zazen, set your mind on the palm of your left hand. This is the way correctly transmitted by Buddha ancestors. Another change. I don't know anyone amongst modern Zen teachers who recommend specifically to keep the mind in the palm, in the mudra of the hands. Most people say concentrate on the breathing or the posture, or as I do, open spacious awareness, follow the breath. But here in one other place, Master Dogen spoke about keeping the attention in the palm of the hand. You can if you wish. Right? I don't know. Good answer. Rujing said, although Kao at Yaoshan, just being a novice, did not receive monk's precepts, you should not imagine that he did not receive Buddha precepts correctly, Buddha ancestors correctly transmitted precepts. He wore the Buddha robe and used the Buddha bowl. He was a true bodhisattva. Little background on this. Dogen, when he came to China, 
may have had some precept problems. What? Precept problems. What's precept? Good question. Um, you know, the monks in China and India take the full Vinaya precepts. There's 256. Do I have the number right? 256, I believe. And the Bodhisattva precepts that they took in Japan were the 16. So when Dogen and a lot of the other Japanese monks were sewing up in China, the Chinese monks were going, I'm sorry, sir, your precepts are out of order. You're not, you're a lay person. You're not a real Zen monk. So this actually caused problems for a lot of the Japanese. Rujing seemed to have looked the other way. That's what this is about. He said, don't worry about which precepts you have. You're as real as real can be to me. You see, again, things change the more they stay the same. Oh. You got it. So that's why he tells the story of Cao and Yao Shan, who was a novice when he received um, the transmission. When monks are seated in assembly, their seniority should follow the order of receiving the bodhisattva precepts, not that of receiving the novice or monk's precepts. This tradition of bodhisattva precept transmission is the correct one. Dogen, I am very pleased with your deep aspiration for seeking dharma. Truly, you are the fully entrusted vessel for the transmission of the Sao Dung school. In other words, your precepts are perfectly kosher with me. Okay. All right. Now, next. Excuse me. The experience of the ancient and present Buddha ancestors is an excellent guidepost for our practice. In the beginning, when we first arouse our mind to understand Dharma, it appears that there is a Buddha way. But later, when we become established in our understanding, it appears that there is no Buddha way. This is a very subtle section. We should read it slowly and carefully. So when you start, it appears there is a Buddha way to walk, but as you move through, there is no way, no Buddha way. What could that mean? On the other hand, when we begin to practice, it appears that we have not yet attained enlightenment. And when we really enter the Dharma, it appears that there is a spirit of enlightenment that goes even beyond the ancients. In other words, nothing to attain. My question is, where is enlightenment? At the beginning or later on? Something to attain or something not in need of attaining at all? Ciao, ciao. Sit down nice. Rujing replied, Bodhisattvas and Shravakas asked this same question of the world-honored one when he was alive. In India and in China, there has been correctly transmitted teaching about this. On the one hand, it is taught that the Dharma does not increase or decrease. It's not something to attain. It's not something to get to. Go down. If so... How can there be such a thing as attaining enlightenment? This teaching implies that only Buddhas have enlightenment. Bodhisattvas can never attain it. And this raises a serious question and a serious doubt for practitioners. It's the same question that draw, drove 
Dogen to China. If we're already enlightened, what need is there for practice? Dogen. Dogen. What is there to realize? It is also taught that enlightenment is the same in the beginner's mind and the experienced practitioner's mind. But how can this be possible? If this is so, then immediately upon first arising the bodhisattva aspiration for enlightenment, you should already be a Buddha. On the other hand, if there is no enlightened beginner's mind, how can we make steps toward the enlightened fulfillment of the Dharma? So the enlightened fulfillment of Dharma must be the fruition of the beginner's enlightened experience, and the beginner's enlightened experience must be the seed of the fulfillment. Ha. Ha. So here's what I think this is. I like to say that the beginner and Dogen said this, the enlightenment, the beginner's enlightenment first wanting to begin practice, practice, attaining some realization and passing from this world is all the same enlightenment. I like to say it's like the, the, the walker who walks the mountain and at the start he, he begins his walk, but then he realizes at some point that the whole mountain was realization all along, but yet keeps walking. The beginner does not realize that the whole mountain was realization. The fellow down the road realizes this, and the fellow who's 30 or 40 years down the road finally gets maybe some ability to bring this to life and to truly realize what this is. Dekiru. So in other words, Dogen came up with his idea of constant practice. There's nothing to get closer to or further away from, and you need to realize that. At the same time, we practice every moment by moment, step by step. So Ruzing finishes with this analogy. Let me explain this more clearly with an analogy. It is like a candle with an illuminating flame. When the candle is lit, there is a flame. As the candle burns, there is still the same flame. So there's no difference between the beginning time and the later time of the candle burning. The candle burns straight down and it never burns backwards. The flame is neither new or old. It is neither the possession of the candle, nor does it exist apart from the candle. The flame is like the light of the beginner's mind. The candle, when it is flameless, is like, is like the lack of vision of one who has not begun the way. Basically, same analogy as the mountain, just about a candle. The bottom of the mountain, the top of the mountain, moment by moment. Being someone's father, also moment by moment. The same flame burns at the start of the candle as at the bottom, but yet there has been progress. The candle moves lower and lower. You do get greater ability and understanding of this practice, even though the flame has been burning all along. Okay? So let us close with these words. The wisdom flame of the beginner's mind is complete at the outset, at the start. 
the all-inclusive samadhi of Buddha ancestors is the completion of that same wisdom over time, burning down the confusion of, ign of ignorance till the candle is no more. Can you see how this practice has no beginning and no end? How now and later are not really different? So I like to say, you know, we have the symbol of the perfect Buddha. You and I are not perfect. We're always moving towards the perfect Buddha. And yet, we also say that we are Buddha all along. Which way is true? Yes. Or as you say, I don't know. Yes, we are, my dear. Some of us don't realize it, and some of us, even more of us, don't act like it. So we're always moving towards Buddha. We always are Buddha, but we have to realize and act like Buddha moment by moment. It's up to us. Okay? This is the essential teaching correctly transmitted by Buddha ancestors. And it says, in closing, on the 10th day, 12th month, 5th year of the Kensho area, 1253, this was copied in the abbot's room in the Ehe Monastery in Echizen. This text was found among the late teacher's posthumous documents. That means after he died. This is Ajo's writing. It was in the form of a draft and may not be complete. I shed many tears in my regret that the work was never completed. Signed, Ajo. Ajo. Ajo was Dogen's helper. Any questions? Yes, question over there. Come close. What's your question? You got to speak here if you want a question. Come here. What's your question? What does Dogen do? What did Dogen do? Okay, I'll have to start at the beginning again. <laughs> Wonderful koan. Wonderful koan. Any questions uh, from the folks at home? Nothing? Any questions from Daniela? Daniela. Yeah, I'm intrigued by um, I'm intrigued by putting the uh, while you meditate putting your mind in, in your hand. Mm. Um this is the first time that I've heard about this. And, and can you tell me a bit more about this? I don't think it's that different from open, spacious uh, awareness. You have to do something with the mind. In open, spacious awareness, the object of the mind is everything. Focusing on the breath, you just keep it there lightly as a place to be centered. Focusing on the posture, lightly to be centered. If you place it in the palm of the hand, or which is down by the hara, they call that area. Lightly, it's just resting there. It's just, you're keeping it there, but you are openly, spaciously aware. I, I really don't think it's that much of a difference, but give it a try. Uh, of course, here you have to be a carbon copy of me, but... Uh, no, actually, you experiment quite a bit in this practice and find your own way. And then when you find your own way and you become a teacher, you can tell everyone that you're doing it the right way, the Buddha's way, transmitted for 50 generations, and everyone else is wrong.
right? Tradition. Tradition. Good question. Another good question. Anything else? Okay. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.